welcome to the Product Hive podcast. My name is Dave Crow, and I'm one of the event organizers for Product Hive. On this episode, we're bringing you the presentation from our September UX event, where you'll hear from Emily Campbell. Emily is a design specialist on the design transformation team at Envision. She talks about how part of the design process requires detaching ourselves from our personal biases, habits, and assumptions. Emily introduces creative methods to be more intentional and to carry a beginner's mindset into your work. She also discusses how to better arm you and your team to stay productively curious and to encourage that behavior in others. A big thanks to Podium for hosting this meetup at their beautiful brand new headquarters in Lehigh. And finally, be sure to join our community on Slack, where there's always lots of great conversation happening about UX, product management, and more. You can get an invite to our Slack group and find more information about Product Hive at ProductHive.org. So now let's hear Emily Campbell's talk, Creative Mindfulness, Designing with a Beginner's Mindset. you all today. Uh, thanks for coming out. I am Emily Campbell, for those of you I don't know, which is many of you. Uh, so I just want to start by giving you a quick introduction to who I am, why I'm up here, and what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, so first of all, I'm a senior design specialist at Envision, and if that sounds very buzzwordy, it kind of is. Um, <laughs> I'm on the design transformation team, and this team was created in order to help our customers, but also to bring this out into the larger market, to help our customers elevate the value and the impact of design, and to change the way that we think about design and to help others change their perception as well, from just being focused on the output to having design be more of a strategic input, a more of a strategic differentiator. Uh, so that's really fun. Uh, prior to being at Envision, I was at Degreed uh, up here in Salt Lake City, where I was a product designer. I was uh, design lead for the enterprise products and actually moved into product management for a while before running myself right back to design as fast as I could. Uh, and I've also been a freelancer for 10 odd years working as a consultant, as a strategist with a number of uh, small startups, mid-sized startups. And I've also had the opportunity to work with a number of very large organizations, especially in my role at Envision. And what's been really interesting about this is whether you are a big company or a small company or a startup or someone who's been around for 100 years, you know, mature, not as mature, uh, a lot of the challenges that we're facing as design organizations and product organizations are really consistent, right? So um, it's been really fun to meet all of these different teams and to uh, be able to have this conversation. I'm also a yoga instructor and a meditation coach. Will be That'll be kind of important in a moment. This is not a picture of me. Um, I couldn't find a picture of myself practicing yoga. And um, I also have an academic background in economics where I've studied behavioral structures, incentive systems, and this is also not a picture of me, for those of you paying attention. <laughs> this is our buddy, Adam Smith. Um, <laughs> but so I have this really interesting background where I've you know, kind of looked at these systems and human behavior and how that impacts the choices that we make and how we work together throughout my career. So I want to get started with a quick little experiment we're all going to participate in, a little icebreaker. I promise it won't be awkward, only if you make it awkward. Um, I want you to, you don't have to close your eyes, but I want you all to just picture a spaceship. Picture a spaceship inside of your head, clear your mind. What does it look like? How big is it? What is it made of? What does the inside look like? 
So I don't know, raise your hand or look at me or something when you have your spaceship. Everyone have a spaceship? Okay, now we're gonna keep ourselves honest. Turn to your neighbor and tell them what your spaceship looks like real quick. <laughs> All right. Okay, cool. All right, so we all have our spaceship in our mind. to do is I want you to tell me how many of you saw something like this inside of your head. So most of us, most of us, right? Uh, we've been trained to think of spaceships as metallic, maybe white, maybe NASA on the side, maybe Russian. Uh, but we all think about spaceships more or less the same because this is what we've been trained to think of uh, spaceships as looking like. If you ask a kid this, you're going to get something different, right? Uh, <laughs> one guy, one guy thought of that as his spaceship. <laughs> So, you know, this is something we laugh about as, as adults. Um, but what's really interesting about the way that children go through an exercise like this is they don't know what a spaceship is supposed to look like. They might have a general idea, you know, but they're not sitting here thinking, well, it has to have so many boosters and be, you know, yay high. To them, it needs to basically get them to space successfully and let them enjoy the experience. And that's really important. Kids are focused more on how they individually perceive a spaceship and what it means to them. So if I were to go into space, I'd want to have a big window for me to enjoy the planets and look out the window at. Uh, or for example, I might want to have some nifty green and red seats to match my outfit as I'm floating through space, um, <laughs> which seems silly. But at the same time, this isn't that silly right now. I mean, we're about to consumerize space travel. This is happening inside of our lifetime. And so this concept of a school bus at a spaceship isn't all that absurd, right? So kids have a way of looking at problems from a very human perspective, even if they don't know that they're doing it that way. And we like to encourage them, right? We like, as parents, we find it kind of funny. Uh, but we also like to encourage kids to be creative. And we have whole industries and product lines around encouraging kids to keep that spark, right? Hey, your, your unicorn has funny little legs? Cool. Let's create a stuffed animal out of it. Uh, so this trend of children being innovative and you know, being creative is nothing new. Um, in fact, it's something that has even been captured inside of the scientific canon. So Thomas Kuhn, who wrote The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, highly recommend the Cliff Notes version of this, uh, though it is very interesting, you know, talks about how the people who create disruptive change are often either very young or very new to the areas or the industries that they're actually disrupting, right? The youths are disrupting the world. Um, <laughs> and it seems at this point kind of cliche, and he even acknowledged this inside of his thesis, that like we see this happen so often that it's almost become cliche, right? So we can think of a history of young people disrupting their space, right? Um, you know, going back a while, <laughs> which, I love that both Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, first of all, had a publicist who said, hey, this is a good idea. <laughs> but also, um, how Steve Jobs just makes it look so much better. I mean, it's like those of us who are Apple fans. Um, but let's turn to a young man who uh, missed the whole hugging the computer uh, phase. Orson Welles was in his mid-20s when he wrote and directed Citizen Kane, which is considered still one of, if not the best movie ever created. And part of what made Citizen Kane so successful is that it upended 
what a good movie was supposed to do or look like or sound like. And he talks about this, that what allowed him to create such a good outcome is he didn't know what good was supposed to look like. He had, as he calls, the gift of ignorance. Has anyone heard of this before? Yeah? Okay. So the gift of ignorance is this you know, concept that basically, if I don't know what good is supposed to look like, I'm not focused on assumptions or expectations, I'm just creating, right? Sounds really great, uh, but kind of hard, not so awesome for a number of reasons for this to always be the way that we think about creativity. Uh, so first of all, you know, we have real constraints. It's one thing for one guy to create this incredible new idea, new company, uh, but as somebody who's worked in the enterprise space, we have constraints of change management, right? All of us have constraints of time and resource. We can't just create Citizen Kane every time we want to create a creatively good movie. Uh, what about making it repeatable? So again, one thing to have a light bulb moment. It's another thing to have multiple light bulb moments on demand inside of those constraints. And how do we scale it? So we go from one creative genius to a team of creative geniuses, or maybe 3,000 of them, or 30,000 of them, working across multiple product lines, working across multiple geographies. And then this is the last thing that really hit home for me, which is how do we make this intentional? Um, and by intentional, I mean something that we are choosing to do, we are aware of the assumptions we're making, we are aware of the potential outcomes. And this one really hits home for me, and it might hit home for some of you guys as well, because that whole gift of ignorance that we're seeing from all these creative geniuses, we're starting to see the outcomes of their move fast and break things mentality, right? We're seeing it in the manipulation of social media. Uh, we're seeing it inside of scaling issues when it comes to Tesla and getting you know, their cars out the door. Uh, and even all of these, these tech geniuses have said, we might have made a slight mistake in how we have promoted the addiction and the engagement inside of uh, technology. There we go. So we need to have a paradigm shift. We need to have a new way of thinking about creativity, of thinking about genius. And so that's what we'll be spending the back half of today talking about, um, where we want to get back to this beginner's mindset. The beginner's mindset uh, is a concept that actually started inside of uh, Zen Buddhism, but has been popularized in the West, specifically by this guy who wrote this book, which has a pretty big following in Silicon Valley and has for years, where he describes the beginner's mindset as essentially the ability to have multiple possibilities inside of our mind, not to be constrained. Whereas in the expert's mind, there are only few possibilities. I know what a spaceship looks like, right? Versus a child who doesn't. So in of itself, this seems like a bit of a paradox. Because if this is indeed true, then anytime I reach a level of expertise in an area, I'm constraining myself to not being creative? That doesn't make any sense. So he goes a step further with the parable. A young student comes to his master and says, Master, teach me the ways of Zen Buddhism. And the master starts to tell him all the nuts and bolts, beginner stuff. And the student goes, no, I, I know that. I already got that. Like, let's move on. And the master says, you know what? Let's stop. Let's have some tea. Bring me your cup. So the student brings his cup, and the master starts to pour tea. And suddenly, the tea starts overflowing the cup. And the student's like, master, you're overflowing my cup. And the master says, I know. Go away and come back to me when your cup is empty. 
And the concept behind this parable is essentially we need to be able to intentionally get back to this empty state, to this beginner's mindset. That's when we can truly learn. True mastery is the ability to come to a problem with the tools to receive, the tools to be creative, instead of just assuming we know all the answers. If you've visited my Twitter page in uh, coming up to this event, you would have seen this at the top of my feed. This sums up to me the importance of everything that we do as designers, because we are responsible for affecting others, for making choices specifically for others to use or to change their lives, to impact their lives. And so we have to be intentional about that, right? But this is also a huge opportunity. So design is intentional. We need to design with intention. How do we do that? Well, whoops, go back a size. We need to challenge our paradigms. So our mental models, what we think success is, what we think we know about a, a situation, uh, the intention that we bring to these problems. So are we coming at this right? Are we looking at this problem correctly? What assumptions am I making? How well do I really understand these problems I'm solving? And, and are my solutions right? You know, challenging our solutions, getting inside of that mindset. So how do we do this? Um, so I'm gonna walk you through five different ways that we can practice mindfulness awareness, intention inside of creativity. So uh, first of all, we want to practice mind mindfulness. This is really kind of the foundation for the rest of these. Uh, second, we want to learn to observe without judgment. To encourage curiosity, uh, to create a culture of learning for ourselves as well as for our teams. Uh, and then finally, to get into the habit of questioning our bias and our assumptions. So, does this sound familiar to anyone? Parts of this, maybe? If it does sound familiar, uh, you're not crazy. Uh, this actually, I mentioned that book has been, become pretty popular inside of Silicon Valley. Um, this is actually very, this, this concept is pretty foundational to like D-School or IDEO's design thinking methodology, right? This concept of being intentional, being curious, uh, you know, questioning our assumptions, listening without reacting. But the difference is that, and this is really interesting because a lot of the critique about design thinking comes down to this. Mindfulness is a mindset. It's a way of being. It's something we train ourselves on so we can do it automatically. Whereas design thinking is a method. It's something we can use to get into that mindset and to practice it and to involve others. But they're slightly different. I don't walk around saying, wow, I'm design thinking today but I might say I am in a state of mindfulness. And so we want to separate those two. Going back to our spaceship example, uh, Apollo 13, anyone? I love this scene because this really captures this, right? Um, these guys had some serious constraints when they had to literally put a square peg into a round hole, right? They had constraints of time, they had constraints of material. They had constraints of people's lives, so luckily most of us are not in that situation. Uh, and they had to be intentionally creative. They had to be able to get into that mindset intentionally. And I'm going to come back to this example in a moment because NASA has done a very good job, even going back into the 60s, to cultivating this culture of curiosity, this intentional curiosity inside of their organization. So how do we practice mindfulness? I mentioned this is sort of the foundation. Um, so I have another exercise for us to do. Uh, I want you all to, again, you can close your eyes or just quiet your mind. Start to follow this gift with your breath. 
It is GIF, by the way, not GIF. <laughs> I want you just to practice breathing in and breathing out. And as you're doing this, I want you to start paying attention to yourself breathing in and breathing out. Is the air coming through your mouth or your nose? Is it settling in your lungs, in your diaphragm? Are your shoulders relaxed? Are you sitting up straight, really letting yourself take a full breath? Anyone who's had any exposure to meditation or mindfulness practice has done something like this. We often start with deep breathing exercises. And even the most uh, practiced experts in meditation will come back to intentional breathing. And, oops, there we go. Um, this exercise really summarizes, there we go, uh, what we think of when we think of mindfulness. Being aware through paying attention, on purpose, in the present moment, non-judgmentally. So let's break this down. Uh, first of all, paying attention, that one's pretty straightforward. We wanna be aware of what we're doing, right? We wanna be aware of whether we are breathing or interacting with someone else or going through some sort of exercise. We wanna be aware of that and we want to be doing it on purpose. That comes back to this word intention. What am I trying to get out of it? Maybe it's just slowing down my brain, but I'm not just going through the motions. In the present moment, meaning, you know, we don't wanna be thinking about what we did yesterday. We don't wanna be worried about what we're doing tomorrow. We actually wanna be focused on what it is that we're paying attention to, but we also wanna be non-judgmental. So if your brain starts to wander, it's okay. You don't have to be angry at yourself. You just come back to your breath. So this is where this base of mindfulness comes in. To essentially see how things really are, not distorted through preconceived notions of what a good breath should be or interpretations. You're not worried about if the guy next to you is breathing better than you. You're just focused on your breath. Now, this is very interesting because this comes back to a lot of what we do as designers. Uh, when we are going through research or uh, trying to understand, you know, validating a product solution or we're working with others creatively. Uh, this is a framework that we use in like empathy maps, but this also comes back down to mindfulness. So um, think about this. Think about how you might be mindful inside of a, a situation you might face this afternoon. So if somebody comes up to you, they say, um, I have a great solution for this problem we've been working on. Well, what I see is their solution. I might think, um, I don't really know what's going on here. I don't think that they are approaching this the right way. I feel like I could do this better. I feel like my solution was better. And how am I responding? Maybe I'm responding by interrupting them. Maybe I'm responding by giving them body language that shows them that I don't like what they're doing. Well, being mindful allows us to start to capture ourselves in that state, to observe, to not pass judgment, and to adjust. Right? So this is why this is the foundation of what we'll be talking about through the rest of these slides. So observe without judgment. Um, again, you know, this isn't about getting mad at yourself if you're doing it wrong. This isn't about wondering if somebody else is doing it better than you. Let's return to our spaceship example. When you guys were picturing your spaceship, you were present. You were thinking about your mind, your spaceship, right? And even once we turned and started talking to each other, we were having fun. We, we weren't worried about, oh, their spaceship sounds a lot cooler than mine. So that was kind of a fun example, but that's essentially the mindset that we want to get back into, is how can we just observe ourselves, be aware of what we're doing, be present inside of that, and not worrying about if we're doing it right or wrong. 
So in addition to being present uh, and observing yourself, we want to start finding patterns that allow us to get back into this mindset when we find ourselves not performing it the same way that we want to. So for example, I find myself listening to somebody else's solution, I find myself responding in a physical way, I find myself not being willing to take their idea into consideration. I want to start being aware of that, observing myself doing it, not passing judgment, but recognizing those patterns. How can I catch myself? How do I adjust that behavior so that I can change it in the future, moving forward? Uh, so <laughs> when we come across this inside of design thinking. This is often inside of this empathize and define uh, section that, you know, section, that was a horrible way to put it, that when we're going out and we're talking to people, we're trying to understand their problem, we're trying to figure out the problem space that we actually want to solve for. There's a problem with just looking at this as empathy. There's a concept called the empathy paradox um, that actually, uh, there was an interesting study done so a uh, group of scientists went to a bunch of managers uh, who worked inside of a retail store and they gave them all this information about their customers. So they said, oh, your customer is this, and they think that. And so the managers got this idea of what their customer wanted and who they were. Uh, and then they had a different group of managers that they didn't find. And then they sent them out working in the market and came back and they assessed how well those managers actually knew the actual needs, the actual outcomes that the customers would want. The manager group that was primed Raise your hand if you think that they understood the customer needs better. You guys are smart. <laughs> what this scientific group found was that when we think we know what somebody else wants, when we think we understand somebody else, we're actually less likely to actually know what that person wants, what that person thinks, and what their mental models are. That the empathetic position is actually one where we know we're not the other, where we come to a situation observing without judgment, right? Strictly trying to take the inputs, trying to understand without thinking, oh, that sounds about right, or oh, I knew that they would do that, or I think they'll do this. And the best example of this, if you've ever seen the show Undercover Bosses, where you have the CEO go in and you know, first it's like, oh, I know my people, I know my company's culture. Um, it's only when they actually go in and take on the role of their employees that they realize how little they actually know. Because by thinking that they knew their, their employees and, and their employees' needs and the working conditions and the culture of their company, they were actually unable to understand the culture of their company. It was only once they had cold water thrown on them and actually got down into the trenches that they realized, wow, I don't know them. This will help me understand them better by listening to them instead of assuming I know what they're going to say. So how do we do this in practice inside of our creative groups? Um, design principles are something that we can use to build a foundation that is both helping us make sure that this is part of our culture, that we want to be intentional and mindful, but it's also something we can come back to. So for example, we may have a principle that we're always going to account for what we heard before we respond. So we go through a research session, we go out and we talk to people, we come back. Before we start saying, hey, I think this, or this is what, you know, how we should move forward, we just say, let's even figure out what we saw, right? Um, so this is something that we can use to guide ourselves through this process and to be more intentional and mindful uh, as we're learning these habits and trying to build them into our day-to-day our -day experience. Um, hold regular retrospectives. A lot of times we think of retrospectives as something we do like after a product sprint, right? So why did this stuff ship late? But retrospectives are a great way for us to build rituals that allow us to actually be mindful and aware, find those patterns, and learn to start adjusting them. So my team, 
uh, at Envision, we hold regular retrospectives every couple weeks. It's not tied to any specific sprint or any release. We say what's been going well, what hasn't been going well, what could we do, be, what could we be doing better? Um, and there are ways that you can do this. So maybe, you know, first we take turns saying what's been going well, then as ind individuals we say this is what I think I could be doing better, right? So it's not about pointing the finger. And then collectively say, how do we align on, on being able to correct for the patterns that aren't going as well and to make progress moving forward. Um, and rituals allow you to do that. So actually build that habit. Don't have it be an ad hoc thing. Schedule it on the calendar. Uh, the last thing is the mustard rule. I love this. I had never heard this until I came to Envision. But the concept here is basically, if your buddy has mustard on his shirt, you tell him. You don't want him to be the guy who's walking around with mustard on his shirt, right? Well, similarly, we want to have a culture of innocence. If we find somebody responding in a way that seems like they're not just observing, they're not just taking stuff in, right? They're projecting themselves into a situation. Say, hey, man, I think that, you know, this is what I see you doing, right? Now, this might sound kind of contrived to be like, Phil, I see you reacting instead of observing. But if we build these rituals and we build it into the culture through principles, then it doesn't become something that's weird or calling someone out. It's just something we expect from each other in order to be better. So how do we encourage curiosity? So we've now gotten to this point where we're mindful, we're, we're emptying our cup, we're getting back to the place where we're actually able to start to, to be curious, to be creative, right? To get that light bulb moment on demand. So um, I mentioned NASA does a really good job of this. Uh, there was a study commissioned by NASA back in the 60s uh, to a group of scientists and they asked, how can, you, how can we measure genius? We want to be able to figure out who is more likely to be a genius inside of NASA and we want to hire these people and we want to promote them. So um, they did this study, it went really well and the scientists were so impressed by the results they turned around and they did the same study with children. And they used questions like this, like how many how many ways can you use a paperclip? Where people who could think of more ways to use a, a, a paperclip to come up with more ideas tend to be higher on this genius scale. So they did this with children. They started out with kids who are about five years old. What percentage of these kids do you think registered in that genius scale? What do you think? Over 30%? Over 50%? 98%. 98%. So they went back. Five years later, they went to the same kids, asked the same questions. So now the kids are 10 years old. Do you think we're still at 98%? No. <laughs> uh, you think we're at 50%? 30%. That's a big drop. They went back 15 years later, 12%. So then a bunch of people quit because they were like, well, this is depressing. <laughs> so, but they kept on tracking this study. They ended up talking to over a million adults. The average age was around 30, 31 years old. 2%. 2% out of a million adults could register in the same genius scale for being able to come up with ideas for how to use a paperclip. Now this is really interesting because a lot of times when we're talking to other people, especially people who aren't designers, we hear, well, I'm not creative. Creativity is not something you're born with, except for the 2% up there. You know, <laughs> Creativity is not something you're born with. We're all born with it. We all build silly spaceships. It's something that we grow out of. It's something we forget. So that's kind of encouraging, though, because if it's something we're born with, it's something we can come back to. Um, so this concept of divergent thinking versus convergent thinking, right? How do we allow ourselves to think outside the bounds of possibilities uh, versus convergent thinking? That's where creative uh, mindfulness, creative intention, that's where this really comes down to, is how do we train ourselves to embrace 
convergent or divergent thinking on demand. Good news is, we were all just doing our deep breathing exercises. Turns out that practicing meditation actually helps you get better at divergent thinking. So we're all becoming more creative today. That's, uh, that's the good news. <laughs> um, but how do we practice this you know, inside of our groups? How do we build this into our culture? Um, well, the first thing is be inclusive. And you know, that's one of those words that can have many meanings. What I mean here is don't think that you have all the answers. Don't think people who look like you have all the answers. Don't think only designers have all the answers. Go out and listen to what other people think. Now one of the, again, critiques of design thinking is we're like, well, you know, all of a sudden all my business managers are coming up to me and telling me how to build a button. Well, maybe they don't have the right way to build a button. Maybe, maybe the way that they're looking at this overall solution, that convergent thinking, they don't have those skills. But you might hear things from talking to them that you don't expect. You might hear perspectives and patterns and things that they bring to the table that can then spur further curiosity. So be inclusive, allow other people to be involved in the creative process. Um, and part of this is we want to create a safe environment. It's hard to share ideas. It is hard. We have to be very vulnerable. Being a designer is hard. Inviting people in who say I'm not creative is even harder because they don't want to be wrong. They don't want to, you know, they're not used to that divergent thinking. So how can we create an environment that lets others feel safe? Well, we can do, you know, silent brainstorming. We can um, make brainstorming a part of our rituals. We can come up with lots and lots and lots and lots of ideas because the more ideas we have, the less we're judging individual ones. So there's a lot of opportunities on how to create safe uh, environments. And then I'm going to run through these last two again just in a moment. But we can build out help me with statements or how might we statements uh, in order to encourage inclusiveness, encourage others to participate. And again, I come back to this a bunch, build those rituals in. Make this something you actually plan to do, not just something you do occasionally or with just a few people, you know, ad hoc. So how might we statements? This is a big part of that design thinking d-school methodology. Um, the reason that these are very useful is in the, the name itself. So first of all, we assume that a solution exists, right? We're not just going completely outside the bounds of reality. We assume that there are some kind of constraints and that a solution exists inside of it. That it's free from judgment, right? So just because we say, hey, I have this idea, doesn't mean we have to do it. So you don't have to worry about being wrong. And that it's inclusive, right? So it's not I think, it's we think. We might, we might try this. Um, so just walking through a quick example. Uh, so let's say you've got uh, an airport, how do you entertain playful children who might irritate already frustrated fellow passengers at that, at that airport? Uh, this is not my text, this is actually available on the DSchool website. I highly recommend checking it out because there's a lot of great examples in there. Uh, but just to run through some of the different ways that we can use these statements and build these statements to be more divergent. So um, I won't read these all out loud, but some of the ways we can do is, you know, we can say, okay, let's remove the bad. How might we remove the bad? So how might we separate the kids from the passengers? There's a lot of solutions in there. Um, find unexpected resources. So flip this problem on its ear. How might we leverage the time of fellow passengers to share the load? A good help me with statement, you can think of you know, three to five ideas that come out of it. So put these on the table in the red text. Put those out there. All these different ways to maybe think about a problem and use that to drive brainstorming. And then some of the rituals that we can build in. Um, I mentioned to my bud Ryan up here, I was going to give him a shout out. So Ryan actually runs a company specific around design sprints, but they've brought the concept of sprints beyond design to start taking this divergent way of thinking and this ritual 
into strategy conversations, conversations about company culture, you know, problem solving outside of product building. Uh, and these are some of the methods that you can use. So crazy eights, you know, rapid brainstorming, round robin where one person designs something, pass it to your right, somebody else makes a change, pass it to your right, see what kind of ideas come out of the group. Again, we're not being judgmental, we're just ideating. Um, you know, storyboarding, uh, scamper, which is essentially another one of those prompts, exercises, uh, and so on. So, and these are just a few of the many possibilities that we can use. So, we've got an empty cup. We've started to be uh, creative, and now we want to create this culture of learning. And essentially what this means is it's okay to be wrong. We're not trying to get the right answer on the first try. We want to get to a place where it's okay to experiment, it's okay to explore. Because every single time that we explore something or experiment something, it moves us further in the direction we wanna go, sometimes by showing us the right way, sometimes by showing us the wrong way, right? But we wanna create this culture where it's okay to, to explore. Um, I really think that this captures the problem we have when we don't use this beginner mindset, right? We don't want to be waiting for the big reveal. We don't want to be waiting for that big aha moment because it then makes us feel like, oh, is this big enough to be the aha moment? Will this be right? Will other people judge me? And so it becomes a state of mind that if I fail, I will be seen as a failure. Not if I fail, I will learn and I can grow. And prototyping is one of those methods that we can use to push this culture of experimentation forward. Uh, because, you know, a lot of times we think about prototyping as just the handoff. I created this glossy comp, so now it's ready to be built. But prototypes really are not intended to be questioning the answers that we come up with. Uh, they're supposed to be there to be asking the questions. So I have this idea. How do I test it? How do I validate it? How do I figure out what, which direction to go? They allow us to learn fast, to fail fast, and to fix fast. That is the value of prototyping. And a prototyping doesn't have to come out of Envision. It doesn't have to look like the thing that you're building. Uh, my boss, Steve Gates, loves to talk about, he was on one of the teams that started building software for the initial iWatch, Apple Watch, whatever. But they couldn't see the device. It was being built in this secret room. So all these software designers didn't even know what they were designing for. So he had one of the designers who was actually working on the hardware come out, and he had a sugar packet. And he said, hey, you know, show me about how big this, this thing is. And so they rolled the sugar packet up until they got to about the size of the Apple Watch. He slapped it on his wrist with a rubber band. And then as they were starting to prototype interactions inside of this watch, he could pull up this sugar packet and test the interaction. Helped him make decisions. Helped him fail fast and fix fast and learn fast, right? It's a sugar packet. We've come so far. <laughs> So um, that's just one of the methods that we can use. Um, and what's really important about prototyping is that they are abstractions of a concept, right? We only want to have them be representative of the thing that it needs to be in order to help us make a decision, right? And what I mean by this is if you're creating a prototype that looks exactly like the thing you're doing, then it's harder for people to feel like it's finished. It's harder for people to feel like it's not personal when it doesn't work. And so you, you get back into this culture where people are not sharing, not ideating, right? Um, so they're an abstraction of a solution. They're a sugar packet. They just help us get the information that we need. So some of the things that we can do inside of our practice. First, we can be very clear about the assumptions that we're making, right? I am not assuming that the sugar packet is gonna look like the iWatch. I'm assuming that the iWatch is about this size. And there are different assumptions. How do I measure what's successful? How do I know that that's successful? What if I'm wrong, right? So be questioning this. 
and then just enough to move forward. What is the minimum amount of information I need to have to help me move forward to answer this question? That's the value of a prototype. So final thing um, is we need to be aware of our biases and our assumptions that we're bringing into this process. Uh, when we look at the different places within a system, right, there are different leverage points, meaning different things can have more of an impact if we change them. Now most of the time we focus on just events. I see something happen, right? Uh, so for example, um, I'm going out into the market and I am seeing somebody react like this and therefore I think that if I build a solution that does that, it's going to make them do more of this, right? But the reality is that the places that we can really start to create transformational change is where we start to change these deeper things. Those paradigm shifts, those mental models. Going back to Orson Welles, it's one thing for him to be like, well, we should up the lighting because good movies have good lighting. It's another thing for him to say, throw out the script, we're going to completely change the way that movies are made. That's changing the understanding of our mental model of a movie. That's how we're able to have more of an impact. The problem is we only pay attention to that top piece. So as you're going through and ideating, as you're going through and brainstorming, as you're going through and critiquing your work, be thinking about, are we making changes just at the superficial level? Are we suggesting creative changes here? Or are we able to lean further down on that ladder? Um, and we can get to this point where we're questioning those underlying mental models, those undermining stru structures, by coming back to these questions. What do I know? How do I know I know this? And what if I'm wrong? Man, this clicker, not getting along with me. Um, okay, so the last thing I'll point out, there's a concept called Conway's Law, um, and basically this, the summary here is that if we are intentional inside of our teams, if we're intentional inside of our process, our products will be more intentional, our products will be more creative, our products will be more likely to create paradigm change if we're doing that internally, right? The flip side of that is a team that is only focused on the convergent way of thinking creates products that reflect that. So in order to be able to create meaningful change, we need to make meaningful change within. And just coming back to these five, these are ways that we can get there. All right, um, last thing I'll leave you with is from that same book, enjoy your problems, right? Be willing to learn and have fun. Thank you so much. Big thanks to Emily for presenting and again to Podium for hosting the event. If you learned some things from Emily's talk, be sure to share it with your team or share it on Twitter and mention us at product underscore hive. Sharing these talks is a great way to support product hive. As always, be sure to check out all our upcoming events. You can find them by searching for product hive on meetup.com. And while you're there, go ahead and join the group. So you always get the latest updates. We also have a YouTube channel where you can find all our past talks. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in your feed soon, and we'll see you at one of our next events. Bye.